chapter 2, verse 4. Philippians 2, verse 4, one verse. The Bible says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let's read that again together. Read it out loud with me. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you again, Lord, as we get into your word, asking your blessing upon this time, O Lord. As I say so often, I confess I cannot change hearts. I cannot touch hearts. I can merely give the message I believe that you have for me to give, but you directed Holy Spirit to each heart as you see fit. Oh, Lord, speak to us this morning. We need you. We need your power. We need your grace. We need your knowledge, Lord. Give us spiritual understanding this morning. Draw us nearer to Christ. Conform us to his image. Stamp your likeness upon us, Lord. We ask for the the power of the Holy Spirit to be among us. Thank you so much for this time now in the Word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Philippians chapter 2. Continuing our journey through Philippians. Helps if I get there, I guess. There we go. We were supposed to be here last week, but I got kind of off script last week. This week kind of builds on the last several weeks as Paul uh, has this habit of giving commands and then telling you how to fulfill his commands. Did you notice that in uh, Colossians chapter 3 when we were in there? Colossians 3, he says what? Set your effect, or he says uh, to, I don't want to misquote it, that's terrible. I got to put things in my notes sometimes. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sit on the right hand of God. So if you're saved, right? Let me switch to the lapel because I'm going to back up here away from the mic. If you're saved, if you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Right? First of all, if you're saved, church, Christian, if you're saved, your life should be one of seeking those things which are above. If you're seeking those things that are below, you have every right to question your salvation. If your lust is for money or power or fame or popularity or anything else, question your salvation. Because we are to be seeking what is above. And then Paul tells them how to do that. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And he goes through chapter 3 of Colossians, and each passage, each verse, builds on the last thought. Here's how you accomplish the thing I've just told you to do. And so he's doing that here in Philippians chapter 2. He gives the command in verses 1 and 2 to minister to one another the same consolations that we have received from Christ. Then in verse 3, which we saw two weeks ago, he gives us the first practical advice. How do we minister consolations to other people? The answer is to do it without strife or for vainglory, right? This is the way that others were treating Paul, weren't they? They were factionalizing against Paul, right? We had the Judaizers who attacked Paul. We had those who were preaching, chapter 1 of Philippians. Paul says, they're out there preaching. And I rejoice that they're preaching a true gospel, but they're doing it to add affliction to me. 
They would make my bonds more uh, uncomfortable. They were factionalizing against Paul. They were just doing it for their own glory. You ever seen those people out there? Man, if you run the street preaching community, you see it. People that you know, you know them. And you realize, you, every time you see their video up there, you like, they're doing that because they like to be on YouTube or Facebook Live. That's why they're preaching. Now, we can still rejoice if they're preaching a pure gospel. But we mourn for that person because they're going to stand before Christ and they're going to have no reward for their labors. Right? So when we're ministering these consolations for Christ, we don't do it factionally. That's what strife means there. Right? So if I'm ministering consolations from Christ, one thing I don't do is I don't, I don't find people who are like me in the church, right? Clicks. Mm-hmm. All right, Reuben, Jason, and Gary, we're all buddies. So if Reuben, Jason, and Gary, if they have a problem, I'm going to minister consolation to them. But I'm not going to worry about Art or, 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 or Leo or, or, or Earl. I don't, I don't have any comment with those guys. That's how it is in church, Right? That's how a lot of churches are. They get the factions and groups and they minister within their own little friend group. That's not what church is about. Church is not a country club. It's not a a social club. It's not a clique place. We are to minister to one another. Well, I don't like them. Minister to them. Well, we don't get along. Minister to them. Remember, we don't obey Christ by loving passively. Right? I don't know if I preached that here before. I say remember, because I think I may pre- I preach it other places. We have this idea in our minds in church. So uh, I don't like, so who, who, who do I want to pick on today? Doug, you're the last one to come in, brother. I'm sorry. I don't like Doug. I, mean, I don't hate him, but we, just, we have different interests. You know, we don't like the same things. And he kind of rubs me the wrong way. He gets on my nerves. I get on his nerves too, probably. And so the best way I can love Doug is just to avoid him. I'm just not even going to have anything to do with him. Because I don't want to be mean to him. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to have nothing to do with him. Right? We rationalize that. But that's not the love of Christ. The love of Christ is never passive in the Bible. It's active. So if I don't like Doug, by the way, church, I like Doug. If I don't like Doug, I am more obligated to minister consolation to Doug than I am to minister consolation to people I do like. Because I'm called to love him actively. Christ loved us actively, not passively. So let's not pretend we can love one another. Well, I don't like them, so I'll love them by avoiding them. That's not love. Okay? It's done, it's not done through factionalism. Well, he doesn't run in our group, so I, I got enough to worry about with our group. I'm not. If, you're, if that's your mindset, church, you're in the wrong church. Because there shouldn't be a my group in the first place. We are one body in Christ, and we minister to one another. So don't minister factionally. That's what strife means. And then he says, not for vainglory. So don't minister to somebody so that you can be looked at and go, what a, man, that guy ministers that boy. What a great Christian he is. He's just everywhere all the time. He's praying with everybody in the church. What a great guy. And then you go to prayer and say, Lord, thank you for the chance I had to be a blessing to Kim in her time of trouble. Oh, Lord, and all the sin that Reuben was in, I got to straighten him out, Lord. And oh, Lord, and I got to provide all the food for the meal. And I'm just thankful to serve. That's being Lord. And there are people who do that. You say, Pastor, that's true. No, there are people who do things within the body of Christ just to tell the body of Christ all the things they've done. 
It's not, that's not how we're to serve one another. We're not to serve for the glory that comes to us. Right? So Paul, he's building on his thought for verse number one. How can we avoid this type of attitude in our ministry? Look back at the end of verse three. Philippians 2, verse 3. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. So Paul says in verse 1, minister consolations to one another as you've received from Christ. How do we do that, Paul? Oh, easy. Don't do it through strife, factions, or for vainglory. How, how do we do that, Paul? How do we not do it for being? We all want to be seen. We all want some recognition. It's human nature. How do we do that, Paul? He goes on, well, in lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than themselves. What is lowliness of mind? Humility. What is humility? Thinking less of ourselves. Right? Remember that, that Jesus said in the, in the Gospels about how one day... His servants would sit around his table. He would gird himself and serve them. And what is the answer to those servants to him? We've, we've done that which is our duty to do. Right? We're unprofitable servants, they said. What is that? It's humility of mind. Nobody will sit at Christ's table in, in, in the kingdom of God and feel entitled to be there. Well, I served Christ all those years. He can serve me today. No, no. All those around his table are going to say, what are you doing girding yourself to serve us? We're just unprofitable servants. We've done that which is our duty. In other words, that's the least we could do, Christ. We did the least that we could do. We should have done so much more. That's humility of mind. We're to serve and love with a humble mind. Now, and we'll get into this, I think I may be jumping ahead of my notes, I don't know, but he doesn't say not through strife or vainglory, but let each esteem other better than themselves, does he? Right? I left the middle part out, didn't I? Because you can esteem others better than yourselves and not really mean it. He doesn't want the outward action of esteeming others better. He wants the inward heart to be humble and say, no, no, they truly are better. They truly are better than I am. They truly should be honored ahead of me. That's what he wants. He wants not... Uh, false humility, right? But truly, from the heart, esteem others as better than yourselves. If you're not doing that, then you're not doing it right. I, I've been that person before. I was going to say I met that person before. I have, but I've been that person before. They gave fake glory, fake honor, said fake words about somebody else. I didn't really mean it. I wasn't sincere. The whole time in my heart, when I'm saying those words or putting them on Facebook, I'm thinking to myself, they're not that great. I'm better than them, but I need to say some nice things. That's not what Christ is called. He's not called us to go through the motions or to fake it till we make it. He's called us to humble ourselves. We talked extensively a couple of weeks ago on the importance of our motivation. Before you serve Christ, make sure you love Christ. Right? It's a firm stand we take in this church. Don't serve if you don't love. Don't give if you don't love. I'll go so far as to say don't attend if you don't love. Unless you're seeking to love Christ more by being here. We don't want to go through the motions. 
Christ is not impressed with religion. He's impressed with the heart. Do you want to be one of those sitting in church that he looks down from his throne and says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You realize that Jesus is here this morning observing our worship, observing our hearts. He sees through all of the nice suit and tie. He sees through all of that right down to the bare person in the heart. He knows why you and I are here. He knows why I'm preaching. He knows why they sang, why you sang. If you're singing the words, draw me nearer, but your heart isn't crying out, draw me nearer. He sees that. He knows they're just words that came out and fell to the ground. Now, if you pray it as a prayer, it's going to happen, right? Jesus said, whenever we pray according to his will, he answers us, right? Is it the will of Christ that we draw nearer to him? Yes. So if you sang that as a prayer to Christ today, he's going to answer that prayer. But if you just sang it because it was the words on the sheet, that profits you nothing. It does nothing. And Christ is not impressed. Sometimes we have this attitude, well, at least I'm in church. That's not what Christ wants. He doesn't want you in church. He wants your heart to love and adore him. He wants your character to be, to be, to be uh, conformed to his image. He wants holiness. He wants you to love him. He's not impressed. Before you serve or sing or give, love Christ. It's only that which flows from a heart of love that is rewarded in heaven and that means anything to our lives. If I just preach because I'm the pastor and it's my job, I'm going to be sorry one day when I stand before Christ and it's all wood, hay, and stubble. If you go out and preach because that's what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to evangelize, you're supposed to be out there, that's not the right reason to be there. We go out, I mean, we go out because we're drawn to go out. We're going out Friday to Santa Monica Pier because there are thousands of people gathered. Some of whom for whom Christ has died and he has his mark upon them. He's going to call his sheep. And what is the voice that God calls his sheep? The gospel. I try not to go out just because I have to go out. Because I'm the pastor. I don't want to go out for that reason. I don't want you to go out for that reason. Say, Pastor, you have to be here at church. That's why you're here. Sometimes, and shame on that. My heart's drawn to the fellowship of the saints. I don't know how some people take vacations and they never go to church. Listen, don't ever take a vacation from church. If you go on vacation and you skip church, I'm telling you, question your heart. If you can be in a hotel on a Wednesday night when the saints, wherever you're at, are meeting, you're not drawn to go meet with them. Something's wrong. Our heart should draw us to Christ. It should draw us to give witness to the lost. It should draw us to serve Christ. We're not going through motions, church. 
our heart doesn't love Christ, then we need to cry out for a new heart. We saw in Revelation 2, 1 through 4 a couple weeks ago, Church of Revelation, Church of, uh, Revelation, the Church of Ephesus. God didn't care what they did. They didn't love him. And he said, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to get rid of your whole church. Well, surely he's going to let them stick around and keep doing all the good stuff they're doing. No. I'll remove your candlestick unless you love me like you should. Your motivations will be judged before Christ. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Your motivations, my motivations will be judged before Christ one day. Wood, hay, and stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. Let's make sure we're not wasting our time. If your motives are wrong, when your gifts and service profit you nothing. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. A couple weeks ago, Paul said, if I give my body to be burned, have not love, it profits me nothing. Even the ultimate sacrifice of our life profits nothing. We saw that last month, the movie. I apologize to the church. These movie nights will get a lot happier if we get past the Reformation time. They all get burned to the stake. Let me just give you the... <laughs> not this month, though, actually. Wycliffe, he got burned to the stake after he died. That's the way to do it. <laughs> but if William Tyndale or John Huss, as we watched, if they went to the stake for any other reason than their love for Christ, they have no reward in heaven. It's wood, hay, and stubble. How much more for us if we don't love Christ? So this means esteeming others better than yourself is fake, phony, profit you nothing nonsense. It is done with the wrong heart and the wrong motives. If it's done without love for Christ. Do you know why we minister to one another? Because we love Christ. If Tatsuo is having a bad day, and someone picks on him and calls him a name while he's preaching, he starts crying and comes to me and says, Pastor, they're being mean to me. I'm supposed to put my arm around him. I'm supposed to comfort him. I'm supposed to pray with him. I'm supposed to show him from scripture that Christ loves him. I love him. We love him. And if I do that for any other reason than the fact that I love Christ, I'm doing it for the wrong reason. I suspect that, I don't expect this, but typically happens. They're trying to force me to go to a baby shower, so I'm just going to go with the traditional stuff here. When Amy has the baby, there's going to be some people bringing meals to us. If you bring meals for any other reason than that you love Christ, you're bringing them for the wrong reason. When someone dies and you provide a meal for them, why do you do that? Oh, because they're my friend. I care about them. Same reason the world brings dinner to somebody. You want to bring dinner to them because you love Christ. And your love for Christ is demonstrated by caring for his people. Do you see how motivation matters? So Paul isn't just saying, esteem everyone better than yourself. He's saying, do it because you believe it. Humble yourself. Think less of yourself and then esteem them better than you. Motivation is everything. We need lowliness of mind. We need to truly think less of ourselves and more of other people. How will this manifest itself? Look at verse 4. 
Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. If you humble yourself and esteem others better than you, that will automatically manifest itself in looking out for their better interests, seeking their good, comforting them, taking care of them, meeting their needs. That's how it's going to manifest itself. Turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4. There's an important question asked in Genesis chapter 4 I want to look at. We'll work our way back towards Philippians. Philippians 4. Sorry, Genesis 4. My mind is in a thousand places right now. Genesis 4. Look at verse number 8 and 9. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? What a question. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my responsibility to know where my brother's at? Is it my responsibility to know his condition? Go to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. In case you were wondering, the answer is yes, by the way. Yes, he is his brother's keeper. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. God codified this in the law given to Moses. Leviticus 19. Let's start in verse number 9. The Bible says that when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest, and thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall not steal, neither deal falsely, neither lie one to another. Ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of, the, of thy God. I am the Lord. Thou shalt not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him the wages of him, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shalt fear thy God, I am the Lord. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among thy people, neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Thou shalt hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt not, thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. This principle is echoed in the second table of the law, isn't it? First table of the law is Godward. Have no other gods before me. Don't worship graven images. Remember the seven. What's the second table of the law? Don't lie. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't covet your neighbor's possessions. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you will not murder them, steal from them, covet their possessions, commit adultery with their spouse, or bear false witness against them. This is God's answer to Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. 
You're to love your neighbor as you love yourself. We are responsible for one another's behavior. Adam was not loving his neighbor when he allowed Eve to sin against God. Korah was not loving his neighbor when he rose up against Moses. Ahab was not loving his neighbor when he murdered Naboth to get his vineyard. David was not loving his neighbor when he had an affair with his wife and then murdered him to cover it up. Nathan was loving his neighbor when he told David face to face, you are the man. You have done this. You have sinned. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to let them go on in sin. We hear this at the, at the clinics. I, we've heard it for years. My wife and I at abortion clinics, especially in Bakersfield. I don't support what they're doing, but I want to support my friend. That's wrong. You do support what they're doing or you wouldn't be here. You're not a friend if you're helping them murder their child. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. You are your brother's keeper. That's not going to work on the day of judgment. Well, I don't personally support them, what they're doing, but I want to help. I want to support them as a person. Helping them sin does not support them. That's a lie and a distortion. If you love your friend, you will not facilitate the murder of their children. What do you hear preaching, especially in Pride Month? Oh, you got to love. You got to love. You can't be so hateful. You got to love. Listen. If we allow people to go on in sin, we're not loving them. We must tell them, he that believeth not is condemned already. You must believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God. What we're doing at the park, and the pier, and the airport, and everywhere else, that's loving your neighbor. But allowing them to go on in sin, that's not loving your neighbor. Look at Galatians chapter 6. If I love my neighbor, I'm going to keep them from sin. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, that's sin. Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's a command here, church, not a suggestion. Right? He's not suggesting. suggesting we bear one another's burdens. He's commending it. He's not suggesting we restore those in sin. He's commanding it. That's what Christianity is. In the New Testament, they shared life and burdens with each other. They didn't let each other go on in sin. Listen, if you know somebody in this church is in sin and you cover for them, you do not love them. You hate them. Confront them. Confront them. Draw them back. Call them to repentance. That's love. That's real, biblical love. All these churches covering up sex abuse from the leadership. That's not love. That's hate. That's not Christianity. It should be dealt with and dealt with swiftly and legally, by the way. 
In this church, such things are dealt with by the law of the land. They're to be turned over to the police. Let them give the evidence. We don't cover for that. We don't cover for sin. That's not loving your neighbor. Acts 2, 42-46, we see them living life together, don't we? Breaking bread, fellowship, prayers. Turn there real quick. Acts 2, let's read it real quick. Start in verse 42. And they, that's the converts from Pentecost, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles and all that believed were together and all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one another, or with one accord, I'm sorry, in the temple and breaking up bread from house to house to either meet with gladness and singleness of heart. They continued daily with each other. We're to be a part of each other's lives. You know why? Because we're our brother's keeper. We're to seek our brother's good. We're to see others better than ourselves. You can't do that on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. You have to be around one another to bear one another's burdens. If all we see each other is three times a week for an hour, we're doing it wrong. We should be doing life together. We should be seeing each other on a regular basis. And we, we do that in this church. We have people who see each other on a regular basis. I love that because that's, that's what Christianity is. You can't bear one another's burdens if you don't know one another. I actually went to a church one time for 12 years. When I left, I didn't know the names of some of the people in the church. That's a shame. 12 years. I couldn't tell you some of their names. They, they came in and they left. Some came in just before the service started, left right after it ended. Didn't know who they were. They'd been coming for a while. Church is about doing life together. People gave of their lives to travel with Paul to help him and write for him. Remember, Paul couldn't write on his own. He couldn't walk on his own. He was partially blind. He was led by the hand, he said. He had an eye problems. He told Galatians, you would, have, you would have given me your own eyes if you could. Other people wrote his epistles for him. He was completely reliant on somebody else. If he was in the average American church, he would have been in trouble. Because we don't give our lives to help one another. You realize that people gave up their livelihoods so they could travel with Paul to help him get around. Who would do that today? I remember a missionary came to church one time and he was, had health problems. He had a walker. He was working in the mountains of, I think it was uh, Portugal, something, somewhere. And he couldn't get around anymore. There was no paved roads. He could barely walk. And he came to the U.S. and he went on this tour of churches. Those that supported him financially, some that didn't. He went to 85 churches saying, I need somebody to come. Yeah, it was to Portugal. Someone to come to Portugal to take over the ministry. Have a church. We have a school. And we have a radio station that's, that, that broadcasts across the whole country. And I can't do it anymore. I need someone who can come able-bodied 
And he said, I've been to 85 churches and no one has volunteered to come join me. No single person, no married couple, no family. Nobody was moved by the pleas of this man. And here people gave up their lives to help the Apostle Paul. What's the problem? We live in churches today, in a culture today. I said that backwards. We live in a culture today with churches who were not taught it's a command to bear one another's burdens, to lay down our lives for one another. Hey, if a missionary comes through here begging for someone to come help, and you come to me and say, Pastor, I'm going to go help them, you're not going to get an argument from me. You're going to get support and prayers and a send-off party. Because that's what we do. We lay down our lives for one another. He went to 85 churches, went back to Portugal, endured physical pain to keep the ministry running, and died a couple of years later. And the radio station was shut down, and the church was shut down, and the school was shut down, and nobody went to Portugal to help him. Nobody. We've missed it, church. We've missed. We are our brother's keeper. We are responsible to one another. Do you understand what that means? That means, I hope you guys aren't superstitious. I'm not going to bring bad stuff on us today. That means if Jackie got in a car wreck, and ended up a quadriplegic. Sorry, Jackie. I don't think of a single person. You were in my line of sight. If Jackie got in a car accident and became a quadriplegic, you know what that means? Somebody here needs to move in with her and take care of her. That's what that means. That means if one of us in this church gets Alzheimer's, we don't put them in a home. We take them to our home and we take care of them. Because that's what Christians do. We love one another. We share our lives, our homes, our livelihoods. That's what we do. Or we're doing it all wrong. We shouldn't be outsourcing our sick people to nursing homes and come on. We should be laying down our lives for one another. The day's going to come when Brother Tassoul gets so old he can't carry that big sign. So who's going to push him in the wheelchair while he preaches as you hold his triple-decker sign? I will. We will. That's what we do. We share not just the good times, the bad times, the tough times. Your problems are my problems. My problems are your problems. Do we understand that? That's Christianity 101. But it's so lost on the church today, isn't it? What churches think that way? What churches think that way? Churches sent messengers on long journeys by foot to relieve Paul of his suffering in prison and bring him gifts and share with him what's going on in the churches. The Christians of the early centuries, after the apostles continued to see their lives as so intertwined, they were fulfilled by fulfilling the needs of others. Let me give you guys some history. When a time of war and famine came to Caesarea, a bishop of the city and a historian of the early church, Eusebius, records this. 
All day long, some of them, meaning the Christians, tended to the dying and to their burial, countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. Christians were doing that. You know why? The pagans had fled the city and the sick and the dying were being uncared for. A few decades after Eusebius, the last pagan emperor, Julian the Apostate, writing to a pagan priest, he said, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the priests, meaning the pagan priests, then I think the Galileans, meaning the Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. This was the early Christians. They didn't have an individualistic mindset. They thought of themselves as a family. Even the, the pagans were taken care of by them. Let's continue our church history. Jesus taught that love of God cannot be separated from love of neighbor. This is evident in the fullest early description we have of a Christian gathering. Justin Martyr describes it this way. There are certainly prayers, scripture reading, a sermon, and the Eucharist. Now, I don't want to scare you guys. The word Eucharist actually means Thanksgiving, and it was stolen by the Catholic Church. He's not speaking Catholic-wise. They've stolen that word. In the early church, it meant Thanksgiving. But together, they also blessed the maker of all for everything we have through his son, Jesus Christ, and through the Holy Spirit. And they do so by giving to orphans and widows and those who, though sickness, those who through sickness or any other cause are in need and those who are in bonds and the strangers living among them. In the same vein, when Tertullian wrote of the importance of Christian marriage, he describes activities that would be prevented by having an unbelieving spouse. He says this, you would be hindered from visiting the poor in their humble homes, attending to those in prison, washing the saints' feet, hosting Christian travelers, and generally making your resources available to others. That's his reason for not marrying a non-Christian. You can't serve others as well. In the early church, they visited the sick and dying, even putting themselves at risk to get the sickness themselves. Jonathan Edwards' daughter took care of a tuberculosis-ridden David Brainerd. And shortly after Brainerd died, Edward's daughter died from the same disease she'd gotten from taking care of Brainerd. During the cholera outbreak in England, Spurgeon visited the homes of the sick and dying, risking his own life. During the plague, Calvin was deemed too important to risk, so he was actually banned by the city from visiting the sick. So he put on disguises, and he went and visited the sick plague victims in their homes, putting his own life at risk to be able to be with the sick of the dying. That's unheard of today. We had COVID, which was not all that serious at all. And we avoided one another, didn't we? I had a pastor friend, I wouldn't call him a friend, I had a pastor I know on Facebook who lamented he couldn't go be with his sick and dying people because of government regulations. And I thought, what, what's keeping you from their home? There's no police in their home keeping you out. You don't want to risk yourself. That's not the Christian way. Some historical accounts tell us that if Christians were in need of food in the early centuries, 
People in the church would take turns fasting for a day so their day's food could go to give to those who didn't have any. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. That is esteeming others better than yourself. We've lost that today. What I want to stress is that we are our brother's keeper. That's been the view from Eden all the way down through history. Go back to our text. I'm sorry, don't go back to our text. Go to Luke chapter 10. I'm looking at the wrong part of my notes. Luke 10. Don't feel bad, I went to the wrong place myself. Famous story here. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? He answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said to him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering, said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise the Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. And then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. There's a lot we could flesh out of that story. A lot of good stuff in that, in that, that parable. That speaks to racism, doesn't it? That speaks to the failure of the law and the prophets to save. I think the overall meaning of that there is that Christ is the Samaritan. He's the one. But what I want to get from that this morning is this Jew hated the Samaritans. They hated them. That's why the priest and Levite walked around. Didn't help him. The point Jesus is making, who's my neighbor? Everybody. Everybody in need is your neighbor. In this church, out there. You say, well, why out there, Pastor? Because down through church history, the Christians were known to even care for the pagans as well. Everybody's your neighbor, my neighbor. There's no cliques, no, no factions. There's no groups. Who's your neighbor? Who's in need? Well, they have a need. They have a need, then they're your neighbor. Meet their need. Go to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. Almost done. Romans 15. 
How about Acts 15? I just realized that's the wrong one. That doesn't make sense. Acts 15. Romans 15. Romans 15. I got it. I need a nap, guys. Romans 15. I keep saying the wrong thing. It's, I know what I want to say, but my mouth is not cooperating with it. Romans 15, verse 1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. What is he saying there? Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Esteem others better than yourselves. We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please. In other words, don't, don't do your own thing. Take care of the one in need. Even if it's ridiculous. Even if it just shows their weakness in the faith. Love them anyways. Meet their need anyways. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. Here's the example. For even Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. Verse 1. I want to call your attention to the word ought there. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. That word ought is not meaning like we use it today. Right? Doug and I ought to go get an ice cream cone later on. What does that mean? You like that, don't you? An ice cream cone? It means we should. We should go get an ice cream. Why not? That's not how the Bible uses ought. In the Bible, the word is duty bound. You're du- you ought to do something. You're duty bound to do it. Let me give you an example. Acts 5.29. We ought to obey God rather than man. Is that a suggestion? Well, you should obey God, but if you don't, it's okay. No, no. no we're duty bound to obey God rather than man. Yeah. Maybe another one. Ephesians 5.28. A man ought to love his wife as his own flesh. Mm-hmm. Is that an option? Well, Paul's saying you should love your wife, but if you don't, it's okay too. Uh-huh. No, no. You're duty bound to love your wife as yourself. So in chapter 15, verse 1, we then that are strong are duty bound to bear the infirmities of the weak. It's our responsibility to minister to one another, to esteem others better, to lift them up, to humble ourselves. It's not an option, church. It's not an option. It's a command that we are given. We are morally obligated and duty-bound to bear the infirmities of the weak. Go back now to our text, Philippians chapter 2. How do we esteem others better than ourselves and do it from the heart? How do we guard against being fake with our mouths and not really meaning it? The answer is in verse 4. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. The answer is action. Laying your life down for somebody else. It's loving actively, not passively. That's the key. Don't look to your own things. Look to the things of others. Self-denial is the key to biblical Christianity. Your problems are my problems. Your burdens are my burdens. And the other way around. We are commanded to care for each other. Pastors are to visit the sick. Christians can't worry about their own health when a Christian is sick. Let's tend to that real quick. 
This is Pastor Rick. I just wanted to put on here an apology for the abrupt ending to the sermon you just listened to. We had a medical emergency uh, during the service at church this morning, so we uh, dismissed immediately to take care of that. So uh, I apologize for that and uh, hope you were blessed by the uh, part of the message that you did here. Thank you.